0: week 57 of the aggressive progressive podcast man this president is nothing if he's not whining let's start the show we are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity
1: you and i as citizens have the obligation to shape the debates of our
0: time I have never heard of Wei Zhijian, CBS White House correspondent, before Monday. But she stopped that president in his tracks. The president, you know, she asked, you know, about the comparison between other countries and the death rate in America. And he said, why don't you go ask China to this Chinese-born American reporter, White House correspondent for a major network, CBS News. Uh, I don't watch a lot of CBS News. Let's face it. I mean, they they have a nightly news program. They don't have a 24-hour service like some of the other uh, networks do, like NBC and Fox, um, CNN, obviously. And she said, why are you asking me to go ask China? And the president, as he always does, his consistency, it's amazing. He lost it. He lost it. And he just ended the press conference. He tried to call on somebody from the back. The CNN correspondent who was standing next to her was called on before that. And she got back up and said, Hey, why are you asking me to go ask China? I mean, I love it. This is, you know, every reporter in that room should take a lesson from her, call this guy out on his BS every time it flares up, his racist, xenophobic, you know, prejudice, whatever you want to call it, America, call him out on it when you see it. She did it. I followed her immediately on Twitter. I didn't even know who she was. I Honestly, I I didn't even know who she was until today. Okay, I didn't know who she was. Now I know who she is, and uh, I really appreciate the job she's doing. But it just, you know, it is who he is. He is nothing if he's not complaining. Over the weekend, he went on a Twitter storm. I mean, Barack Obama um, had a private call with his former staff and called the White House's response a chaotic failure, which is what it is, right? It's a chaotic failure. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. I know chaotic was one of the words. Obviously I don't write out the monologue America <laughs> so I'm talking from the heart. I put in my uh, in my outline talk about Obama Trump. Oh, this set the president off and uh, conservatives you know are, they've got their panties in a bunch about how the how Obama is breaking with norms and traditions. the entire Trump presidency has done nothing but break with norms and traditions especially the norm that you will submit to oversight by the congress right which is something that is implied in our constitution but this president has decided that he would go to court on every attempt for any oversight so that it would take too much time and that it would never happen he he tweeted out hundreds of times over the weekend about this and is you know they they're now saying that there's this Obama scandal, they called it Obamacate, he was asked about it on Monday at that press conference, and he said, oh, he's been, you know, accused of the most horrible political crime in history, but nobody can put their finger on what that is, right, there's no specifics, no nothing, of course, he's got an attorney general in Bill Barr, who is dangerous to the Constitution, right, Uh, let off Flynn, I know I talked about that, I guess I talked about it on my radio show, I probably didn't talk about it on the podcast. Um." He, he let off Michael Flynn. We'll see if the courts let, let him off. I don't know if he will, if they will. Um, dropped the charge of the guy who pled guilty. Okay, you don't plead guilty to the worst thing you did. You make a plea bargain, right? The worst thing he did was not register as a foreign agent while he was advising the President of the United States. Then he lied to the FBI about something that was very relevant to the investigation, whether or not he had talked to the Russian ambassador, which he indeed had, and he lied about it. This is something that the Russians could compromise him on. It's just, and Bill Barr, doing what the president wants him to do, has dropped the charges. I hope the court pushes back and says, you know know what? Too late. He's already entered a plea of guilty. I'm going to sentence him now. You can't drop the charges after the guys entered a plea. Uh, The court can say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not taking your withdrawal of your case here. There's nothing, no additional cooperation from Michael Flynn with the Justice Department that would warrant a dropping of the charges. So let's see what the judge does. I would like, look. The president wants to pardon Michael Flynn. The president is allowed to pardon Michael Flynn. Unfortunately, there is no review by the Congress or the courts about the presidential pardon power. This is a federal crime. He has the right as president to do that. Of course, there's some political risk to that. Barr is trying to get rid of the political risk because that's what Barr does. Barr is a political lapdog, not a true attorney general. We have to look when this is over and and believe me it's going to be over this year there needs to be a full slate of trump reforms just like the nixon reforms of the election process there needs to be trump reforms maybe we have an independently appointed attorney general that is somehow picked by the nation at large or the congress we have to have rules about the president maybe a constitutional amendment that would do that too by the way another constitutional amendment requiring the president to submit to congressional oversight and have some sort of fast-track process with the courts that would be resolved immediately. It goes right to the Supreme Court. Uh, they will sit immediately and, and hear the cases and rule on it within a week. Like what this president has done to the checks and balances in this country. By the way, aided and abetted by uh, by good old Mitch McConnell okay aided and abetted by him and and his 53 republican senators other than i guess mitt romney who has balked at it there needs to be some serious reforms and i believe that after uh this president is gone and there's a new congress in November, in, in january there will be significant reforms the house of representatives should start working on constitutional amendments right now that uh deal with this just bold abuse of power and just rejection by Trump of political norms. I mean, the Constitution only works if people have goodwill. And this president has no goodwill, right? Good intentions, goodwill. They want to abide by the spirit of the Constitution. There's a lot of, you know, echoes in the Constitution about how the Congress has the authority to oversee the president. But That authority is only spelled out in specific areas like the power of the purse, etc. So this president has walked all over it. And I believe that court cases will rule in favor of the House of Representatives' ability to declare, you know, have hearings and have the presidential uh, staff and uh, advisors come before the House and not be held back by the president. They could come in and plead the fifth if they want. But it just takes so much time. It's just such a, a a horrible abuse by this president of our norms and the goodwill that has held this country together for over 200 years. And it, it, it says to me that we need to have spelling out of that, Because any president in the future of any party could do the same. And quite frankly, I believe that we have eroded the legislative branch's authority over the years. And I think it's time for the legislative, legislative branch to take some of that authority back, whether they do it through amendments to the Constitution or they do it by their power of the purse, putting tight purse strings on everything this president or any other president in the future does. There needs to be a renewed supremacy of the legislative branch. It has just been gone. It's been chipped away since the 1930s, frankly. And it's, you know, I don't see it coming back overnight without serious amendments to the Constitution. And and quite frankly, the founding fathers are rolling in their graves at this point. Quite frankly, it's not just this president. This president uh, has been the worst about it. But other presidents have abused it too on both parties. And it's time that the Congress gets some of that authority back. It's it's just dramatic to me how bad it's been. And here we are. We're in a country, you know, we got the unemployment numbers last week, 14.7% unemployment. The real unemployment number is probably closer to 25%, uh, according to Trump's own Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, right? Uh, the The unemployment rate is calculated by a survey that happened about three weeks ago now and in that in that 3 weeks since that another 15 million Americans have applied for unemployment not to mention all the people who have had their hours cut, their pays cut. We're in a deep fiscal hole. And we need leadership that is going to put the nation first and not have every day be grievance, grievance, grievance in the middle of this pandemic. I mean even at the press conference on Monday the president you know, took the time to talk about Obama. Now, he got asked the question, but why? I mean, you know, why is it always political? He, before even Obama, he was saying, all political opponents want to do something, you know, want to raise taxes and ruin the economy. I, I'm sorry, who are you going to raise taxes on? Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of people making money in this country right now, Mr. President. Uh, and that's your fault. You own it. Okay? And the fact that there are people out there still not giving you and assigning any of the blame to you. Now, I don't believe you deserve all the blame for what's going on here. Uh, you deserve a lot of the blame. You deserve all the blame for the lack of a coordinated national response, which is leading to a couple of things, right? We were at a point in time a couple of weeks ago when you were listening to Dr. Fauci and the nation was shut down and... And the curve was flattening. And we looked like we would get out of this with about 60,000 deaths. Still horrible. But now we're looking at one hundred and thirty to 150,000 deaths. And that number seems to go up every time I check it. We're over 82,000 deaths now already. And we still don't have a national testing plan in place. You, you did this press conference talking about how we're the best testers in the world. We're not. You lied. You're making things up. Maybe in a couple of weeks we will be. We're not there yet. And now states are opening up. People are getting sick. They're dying. And there still isn't a plan, right? So where are we as a nation? How are we going to continue to allow this guy to govern? How are there conservatives out there that still, you know, I don't even know how, you know, first of all, there's nothing about him that's been conservative in this entire presidency, right? Other than his judicial picks. Now, if all you care about is denying a woman's right to choose and denying a worker's right to organize, I guess he's been your guy, right? Because he put put judges on the court that there are two things they have in common is they don't like women and they don't like unions. And I guess if that's all you care about, then he's your guy. But conservatives used to care about free trade, they used to care about uh lowering the national debt this guy has quadrupled the national debt in 3 years okay quadrupled in 3 years um he is not conservative and he's also incompetent at leading the nation he he wanted to be president as a joke right he ran for president as a joke he didn't think he was going to win he won accidentally And now the hard, you know, we were getting lucky for the first three years. We didn't have any major crises, little flare-ups here and there, but nothing that was, you know, uh, you know, existential threat to our security and our safety in this country like we are in now. We are now in one of the worst crises this nation has ever faced, probably worse than World War II, if you think about it. People are dying every day. People are dying and there's, you know, very little you could do to combat it at this point other than just stay away from other people. And he doesn't like doing the hard work, America. He doesn't like doing the hard work. And what we need right now in this country is a president that wants to do the hard work, the heavy lifting. And I, you know, I don't foresee this guy changing his mind. I would love to hear from conservatives out there who have walked away from this guy who said, you know what? I'm not voting for Trump. Maybe I, maybe, maybe you're not going to vote for Biden, but maybe you're not going to vote at all. Or maybe you are voting for Biden. I, I, look, there's a lot of Republicans out there now organizing for Biden because they see that this guy is a disaster. And I, I don't think it's going to be easy to go back to where we were politically in this country after him. I think it's going to be years. I think Biden... Look, I think Biden's a good president to have next because he's basically a generic Democrat, right? I mean, he's a generic Democrat. People are getting mad at me when I say that Biden is kind of irrelevant to the conversation right now. And it's okay that he's hiding out in his basement doing some interviews. Now, look, I think he should be doing more local interviews in uh, swing states with local newscasters, local radio. He should come on my podcast, frankly. I'm all over the country. Come on my radio show. It's my radio show is in two swing states pretty heavily. Uh I'm in I'm on in two markets in Florida, which I think is going up to four soon. And I'm on in four markets in in Wisconsin, basically covering the entire state. So Mr. Vice President, please consider coming on my radio show. And then of course I'll give it to you my podcast listeners too uh, here in the podcast. It's, uh, but I think that the election is going to be about where the country is in November. And I don't see us digging our way out of this between now and then. And I think that 130,000 number might grow and it might grow in places that are not too too good for this president because it feels like New York, the numbers have been steadily declining for a couple of weeks. California, they've steadily declined. They never really got big there because of the measures they took really early. But now you're starting to see hot spots in Georgia, which I think could be a swing state. You're starting to see hot spots in Texas, which I know is a swing state. Florida, the poll numbers there are not good because basically what the president and his Republican allies have been saying is, ah, we know this impacts old people. Who cares? Let them die. A lot of old people in Florida, you had 10 point drop in presidential approval among people over the age of 65 in the state of Florida, which is why he's down four points in Florida right now. Now that's only going to grow because more and more people are going to die in Florida because they're really not doing it right there. So, And I'm concerned. I have a lot of family in Florida, including my in-laws who are, who are old. They're in their 70s. And I am uh, very concerned for them. I want to bring them back to New York. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where we go. We'll see where we go, and, and we'll see. You know, I, I've got a great guest on the show tonight, a lot of you probably listening to me for the first time because you are Bernie Sanders supporters, and I have Stephanie Kelton, who uh, is very much responsible for Bernie Sanders' economic policy. She's an economist. Uh, she's got a book coming out called The Deficit Myth, and I just want to say one thing uh, that I think a lot of people are evolving on here. We're now in a situation where we have, you know, 35 million Americans who've lost their jobs in the last seven weeks, maybe more uh, by the time we get the next number, right? Might be 40 million, maybe 50 million by the time it's over, by the time we start to reopen. Economists are saying it's going to take us, you know, on the good end, 18 months to get this going again, on the bad end, 10 years to get our economy back to where it was. We're going to need healthcare for all these people out of work. And I don't know how you provide that through the employment system, and how do we expect people to um, you know, pay exorbitant COBRA rates or private insurance? Even the Obamacare exchanges might be too expensive for people out of work for the next couple of years. So there's only really one way to do this, right? And that's a national single-payer health care system. And I've always supported that. Now, I've been politically sensitive to the fact that it might be difficult to pass. And I've said, hey, you know, Medicare for all who wants it's probably a good idea because people can then get into it. If they don't want to get into it, they don't have to get into it. I like that. And maybe that's still the case, but there needs to be an option, a free government healthcare system that just cuts out the middleman, the insurance company. And I know that's another industry that would lose jobs. But what are we going to tell these people? What are we going to tell the family of four that was doing okay, that had everything they needed? Father um, might have owned a bar, mother might have worked in retail, and they were getting by. They maybe they were bringing in about one hundred fifty thousand a year between the two of them. They had health insurance through um, the the mother's job. That job's gone now. The father's bar is gone, not coming back anytime soon. They got two kids. How are they going to get health insurance? How are they going to pay for health insurance on top of everything else that's going on in their life right now? What is the solution to that other than the government stepping in and providing health insurance like every other country in the world does? Look, Stephanie Kelton makes a great point about Germany and about Europe in this interview I've got coming up. Um, There are countries doing it better than us, and maybe it's time for us to take a look at them. Um, Germany's unemployment rate didn't go up that much. She's going to point that out in this interview. Uh, the United States unemployment rate is skyrocketing and it's only going to get higher in the next couple of months. So, all right, before I get to Stephanie Kelton, I got to remind you, uh, this podcast is brought to you by Warby Parker. Friends of the pod you go to warbyparkertrial.com slash Han, and they get a great offer. Uh, five pairs, five days, no obligation to your home. You go on that uh, website, you pick out a frame that you like. Pick out five pairs of frames you like. Give them your prescription. They send you five pairs of glasses and you try them out. You wear them around the house. You see how you look in different outfits. You put them on. If you want to keep them, they're $95 a pair. That includes your prescription, America. And for every pair you buy, you know, they'll donate a pair to somebody in need. And with 30. Three thirty-five million Americans out of out of work right now. There are a lot of people in need, so please go to WarbyParkerTrial.com dot com slash han. WarbyParkerTrial.com dot com slash han for this special offer. Don't miss out on it. Look, you're not going to go to an eyeglass store right now, so go to WarbyParkerTrial.com dot com slash han. All right, I got Stephanie Kelton, former. Senior advisor to Bernie Sanders, joining me on the other side of this break. You don't want to miss this interview. She's got a lot of interesting things to say. She's incredibly smart. And I'll be right back. Professor Kelton, how you doing?
1: I'm all right. How
0: are you, Chris? I'm holding up really well. I should also say, you know, I I first got to know her as one of my daughter's friends. And I, I had no idea you were this, like, tremendous national political voice. Uh, living, uh, you know, in my community, so I'm really we're really fortunate to have you, and I'm really fortunate to have you on the show. Um, I read your article about how the Fed in the New York Times, how the Fed creates money, and it appears that the president and Republicans have no problem with the Fed bailing out Wall Street and bailing out bank- banks by just you know moving the decimal uh, on a computer screen and creating more money for them. But we still run into these problems where members of Congress want to pay for things that go to regular people. I, can you just walk my listeners through, you know, why that's wrong and why we shouldn't care?
1: Okay, so I think uh, let's talk about what it means to pay for things because um, you know that language has a very specific meaning in Washington and the Beltway in Congress. So when when politicians say I wanna do XYZ, right? I want to spend money to build infrastructure or put money in childhood education or or Medicaid or whatever it is. Yeah, I want to spend this money. And somebody says, How are you gonna pay for it? In beltway speak, that means how are you gonna spend that money without adding to the deficit? Right. That's what K4 means in Washington. That's what it means to a politician. So When a politician says, I can do this and I can pay for it, what they're telling you is that they have a plan to spend a certain amount of money into the economy and to offset every single dollar of that proposed spending by either raising taxes so that they can say, well, there's revenue to pay for it all, or they say, I'll carve some money out of some other area of the budget. We'll take it out of defense or wherever we can find money. And we'll put more into this line item and we'll take some out of this line item so that it's a wash, so that we aren't adding to the deficit. Right. So it's just important for people to realize that that's, that's what it means to, quote unquote, pay for things.
0: And Republicans sometimes will say cutting taxes will lead to growth and that's how we're going to pay for the tax cut.
1: Aha. Uh-huh. Which never that's happens. <laughs> right. So that's, that is that so beautiful, right? They They run this playbook and they do it decade after decade after yep. decade, you say, how are you going to pay for it? They say, well, what are you crazy. It's going to pay for itself. Hand wave, hand wave gesture. Right. You know, and they they get their agenda through and they get it through by adding to the deficit. And what Democrats have done is hold themselves to a different and higher standard. They say, oh, we're more serious than our Republican counterparts. We don't use deficits to accomplish our legislative uh, agenda. We have to behave differently. Right. So they try to pair their new spending proposals almost always with increases in taxes. Sometimes they try to go after defense. But let's be honest, defense is hugely bipartisan. I mean, you pass the Defense Authorization Act and you get 91 senators voting in favor. That's bipartisan. You don't really go there. You go for higher taxes. Right. And because they always want to increase taxes to pay for something, turns out that it's really hard to pass. Uh, a bill when you're paid for is a tax increase that nobody wants to vote for. Right. So Democrats tend to not accomplish their legislative agenda because they're trying to pick two fights. They want to raise your taxes and they want to get their counterparts to vote for the bill. So de- Republicans just say, no, look, we're just going to pick one fight. We're just going to cut taxes. and That's it. And then you see what happens. They they're more successful.
0: So, you know, here we are, we're spiraling towards, you know, a really ruinous economy. I mean, something that we haven't seen since 1930. Um, Clearly, there's been some good efforts to stabilize the banks in the stock market. That seems to be actually working. The stock market is almost where it was probably the end of 2019 at this point. But Mm -hmm. yet 33 million Americans now have filed for unemployment in the last six weeks uh, that's going to create a, a huge problem in an economy that relies on people spending money. And now they don't have money. What would you say that people in Washington should be doing and people who are unemployed should be expecting from uh, from their government?
1: Well, they should be expecting a lot more than they're getting at this um, stage. And, you know, I'm fortunate in that I do get to uh, have these conversations with, Democrats in the Senate and in the House. And, and we do talk through the, the question you asked, what should we be doing? Um, I think the, the idea behind the Paycheck Protection Program was a good one, keeping workers attached to their employers, keeping them on the payroll so that their incomes are protected. Even as we ask them to stay out of the workplace, we continue to pay them um, we keep you attached to your employer, so that as the economy does recover at some point, you have a job to go back to. Right. We keep the business intact, so we don't have small businesses failing left and right. Look, we're right now looking at the possibility of more than half of all small businesses going under in this country. Yeah. So the idea was correct. European, some European countries are doing a much better job than we are at keeping workers attached to their jobs and on payroll and protecting incomes. Germany, for example. You know, I, I saw figures the other day that the German unemployment rate has spiked from four percent to wait for it, four point three
0: percent. Right. I mean, it's because they right? figured it out there. They took care of yeah. their workforce, right? Right, right, right. Why can't we figure it out? I mean, I you know they not only figured out their workforce, they figured out their testing, and that's a conversation for probably another another time. But you know, it seems like America is obsessed with people making it on their own, but yet banks and stocks and companies have never made it on their own in this country. Only the poor workers and the regular people in this country are forced to make it on their own.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you asked how, how Germany and some other European countries have uh, managed this crisis better. I, they had a better infrastructure in place already. We're scrambling in the last moment, right, in the midst of a crisis. Right. We, we just go, oh, hell, what are we going to do? And we try to build the infrastructure. And we can't. The Small Business Association can't kick the loans out. We ask the banks to make the loans. The banks are overrun. There's, right. you know, I mean, problem after problem, unemployment insurance. We can't even do that because they're, you know, the system is is um, old and it's, you know, the bureaucracy. It's not, is it's not built to get
0: 3 million it's people antiflated. a week. Right.
1: Yeah, it's antiquated and it can't handle the intake. Whereas, you know, the German system, for example, they already had a system in place that in times of crisis like this, they reduce work hours. The government comes in and supplements the income. I mean, they had the infrastructure in place. It's just much easier for them to do this.
0: Do you think that in the wake of this crisis, America might be more willing to build that kind of infrastructure?
1: I I hope so. I mean, I think that uh, you know what this crisis has revealed, and I yes, you know, seems to me virtually everyone understands it now is just how many vulnerabilities exist in our system. You know, you look at the healthcare system, you look at manufacturing. Why can't we get PPE? And um, ventilators. Well, we have supply chain problems. We've become we've outsourced. We got other countries we're dependent upon for all these things, and right. we can't mobilize quickly to produce. The healthcare systems overrun. You listen to Governor Cuomo. I listen to his daily briefings here at the Long Islander, and he's talking about how difficult it is to coordinate the hospitals because you got the privates and the publics and the this and the that yep. and all these different pieces. And so, you know, you have food banks. We got all these problems with. You know, the way that our social safety net has been built, the way that our trade policies have been constructed over time, our health care policy. So it's exposing all of these vulnerabilities. And I think and hope that lawmakers and more importantly, probably the public at large, is recognizing that we have all these deficiencies and that, you know, we, we need to fix them. We need a permanent fix.
0: I'm talking with Stephanie Kelton. She is a former advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, both uh, as a senator, where she was the senior advisor for the budget committee, and also his senior economic advisor uh, on his campaign. Let's talk about 2020. I mean, we you know this is going to be an election like no other. I've been I've been comparing it to the election of 1932. I'd love to get your thoughts on where you think these campaigns are going to go.
1: Well, I mean you know in a, in a lot of ways it's almost shocking that you see some of these polls and you see Vice President Biden up um but you don't see him up by, uh, by the scale the order of magnitude that you might expect given that as you said in the previous segment 33 million people have lost yeah. jobs right in the, the last few weeks we're staring down the abyss here um we have you know we're on our way to a hundred thousand deaths and god knows i hope it's not more but it's in all likelihood it it looks like it will be yeah and you say you know this, wouldn't you love to run against this, somebody uh, in this position i mean you remember uh president trump said i'm going to be the greatest job creator god ever created yeah and, uh, you know he put everything on the economy and yeah. jobs. And, um, you know, the early mishandling, I think, uh, let this thing totally spin out of control. And I, I think it's clear that um, Biden is it, his intention is to hold him accountable and hold the feet to the fire for these numbers and um, make it clear to voters that he bears a great deal of responsibility for the situation we're in now. So
0: do you expect him to pivot to a, towards a more Bernie Sanders-esque type economic message. I mean, I I for one have been saying for the last, you know, couple of weeks that, you know, all this talk about not being able to have a single payer healthcare system in this country is probably going to get tossed out the window when you have 30 million people unemployed and starting to lose their healthcare. I think you're going to start to see more people saying, "Hey, what am I going to do here, government? Help me out."
1: Yeah, I think that the the proposals are going to have to rise to the occasion. They're going to have to re- reflect the seriousness of the, you know, state of decline that we're in. And, and as you said, you know, you got more than 30 million people losing jobs. Not every single one of those people also lost their health care, right. but a, a good portion of them, the majority in fact did. Right. And you can't simply turn your back on a situation like that. And, um, and so I don't know, I mean, you know, he came in, Uh, Recently, with the idea of lowering the eligibility age on Medicare from 65 down to 60, I can tell you from, um, you know, just having a sense of where the progressive left, if you want to call it that, the Bernie uh, wing of the Democratic Party, if, if you like, um, that's not going to be good enough, right. And I, you know, i I think that to the extent that he understands that, he's any he, and he believes also that he's going to need those voters. that, yeah, I think it's it's reasonable to think that he's going to move toward even more progressive. Uh,
0: agenda. And and these voters, uh, on the Bernie side, love you, by the way, I've talked to a few of them. Uh, uh one in particular, I'll tell you off the air, who's a, a major fan of yours. Um, and you know, this person, we were having a conversation last night and I said, I had you coming on my show. He's like, Oh my God, she's the best. Um, but, um, but you know, what does he have to do? Like in terms of a running mate, would you say to capture that wing of the party?
1: Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I think to capture, as you put it to capture that wing of the party. I think the choice needs to be someone that inspires progressives. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. It, it has to be sort of clear that he is um, aligning himself with someone who shares those co- that core set of values. that yeah. People basically have fundamental rights. You know, a right to an education, a right to health care. Um, he's, he's got to kind of close the gap between where he's been in the past on some of these issues and where, you know, signaling is everything here.
0: My dark horse VP pick. And you tell me what you think of this very dark horse out of the box, Katie Porter. Uh, I think she's brilliant. I think she's brilliant. I think she's progressive. I think she, her record is not long enough that conservatives could tear it apart. Uh, I get it. She's from California, doesn't bring anything to the table uh, as far as uh, geographic uh, concern goes. But I think unifying the party is more important. What do you think of her?
1: I am a big Katie Porter fan. I think she's tremendous. I think she is, in many ways, um, if not the most exciting, for sure, one of the most exciting new uh, members of Congress to come around in a very long time. She's smart as a whip. Um, She's... As you said, she's got the progressive credentials. Right, um, this should be a tremendous
0: pick. I, you know, look, it's my job as a pundit to kind of just throw things out and let people debate yeah. them. You know, so I, I'm, I have not been impressed by a freshman member of the House of Representatives as much as I've been impressed by her in my entire life. You know, I worked in the Senate too for Senator Schumer. Uh, I've been around uh, really congressional politics since the '90s, and this is by far. Uh, the brightest, most mm-hmm. impactful freshman senator I've ever—I mean, she's had an impact uh, in her freshman year in freshman term in Congress like I've never seen before.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, she 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 can have a moment. She makes moments, right? right? I mean, you've seen it. I've seen it. She gets somebody on the in the chair in front of her, and she will own you. I yeah. would not want to be in that chair. If I was not being entirely forthcoming and on the on the side of the people, because she will expose you.
0: Coronavirus right. testing is free in America because of Katie that's Porter. Right. There's just that's no right. d- there's no doubt in my that's mind that she cornered that guy, got him to right. say it's going to be free, and now it's free. You know, I mean right. that's that's impact right there. I mean that's impacting yeah. millions of Americans right now. Okay, I got about I got about a minute left with you. You know, closing up. You know, what should people be watching out for in the next couple of weeks in the economy? And what do you think the next move is going to be for the Fed and other financial institutions that are going to bring us back?
1: I'll tell you what, I am less uh, sort of interested in what the next move from the Fed is going to be. I am very interested in the next move out of Congress. And I I got a little bit hopeful this morning because I did see uh, some references to the next round of legislation. So there's going to be another bill, hopefully. Um, you know, uh, Pelosi and Schumer are talking, and they're saying, and I, and I read uh, Senator Schumer said, we have to go big. We yep. are not done. we got to keep going. We have to be bold. You know, he was using the language of it's got to be bold. It's got to be ambitious. Yep. It's got to be big. And he said, Rooseveltian.
0: Ooh, baby. I love those words as a New Yorker. All right, Stephanie Kelton, at Stephanie Kelton on Twitter. The Deficit Myth, the book. You want to read it now? All right, hang out. I'll be right back. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview. She knows what she's talking about. And I highly encourage you to pick up that book, The Deficit Myth. And read it, because we're in a point in time where we... We're going to be needing deficits for a very long time to fund this economy, which is why you know, these libertarians out there are driving me batty. By the way, I hope you didn't mind that crazy edit in the middle of that interview. I'm trying to give these interviews. I do these, these interviews mostly on my radio show, and I'm on a very tight clock there. And uh, I want to have a longer interview for this show, so I'm giving you two segments of an interview, and I'm trying to patch them together, and I'm trying not to comment in the middle of it. So if you noticed a rough edge, <laughs> there, there may have been one. I'm um, Just being honest, this is how it works in America. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoy uh, her writing. I enjoy her point of view. And I'm much more in tune to it now than I've ever been, quite frankly. And I think that she's uh, her ideas are the right ideas for this moment. And it's time for us to just accept that. Because the day after Joe Biden gets elected, these Republicans who have been running trillion-dollar deficits, and this year is probably going to be $4 trillion, um, they're not going to want to see any more debt. They're going to start saying, pay for it. How are we going to pay for it? Because they're going to try to ruin who, uh, Joe Biden immediately. They're going to try to ruin the country to take back power because that's their play. It's always been their play. I'm not the only person saying it. It is what they do. It is who they are. They put themselves first. You know, one more thing about um, Stephanie Kelton, Doctor Stephanie Kelton. I I met her just because our daughters were friends from school, from camp originally, and I had no idea uh, for probably a year this uh, the 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 amount of work that she had been doing with Bernie Sanders. I knew she worked in the Senate uh, on the Budget Committee. I, I knew that, um, but it was uh, it's funny how things just you just. A lot of the people I have on my show I have met through the years. I, last week I had Neera Tanden on. I have never met her, but I her chief of staff and I had worked on a campaign together years ago, so I kept reaching out, kept reaching out, kept reaching out so I could get her on the show. And I'm hoping to get a really big guest soon. I don't even want to jinx it. I don't even want to say it, who it's going to be, but it's huge. It's not Barack Obama. <laughs> that I would love that. Um, he's following the wrong Chris Hahn on Twitter. Uh, if you look at... Uh, there's another Chris Hahn on Twitter. There's lots of Chris Hans on Twitter. Very common name. And there's one that I communicate with regularly cuz he gets a lot of the hate tweets intended for me. And one day he sent the tweet sent sent me something in direct message saying, "Oh man, sometimes it's tough uh having the same name as you." And I looked on his feed and it said followed by Barack Obama. And I said, "Buddy, Do you realize that Barack Obama is following you because he thinks you are me? So it's not always so bad to have the same name as me. At least I think that's what it is. Uh, He laughed, but uh, it is. It is. We are getting into crunch time here, America. People are waking up. The polls are starting to shift. I feel that this. I hate to always use Star Wars term, but I feel like the uh, the mirage that the Sith have placed on the masses here is being lifted. Right. And we are, you know, I hope Joe Biden's a Jedi. I hope he picks a Jedi to be his VP because we need to take this guy out. We need to conquer this evil that has descended on this country for the last four years this incompetence, this just bad governance and bad ideology and racism and, you know, a president that stokes division at every turn, America, every turn. You know, I know conservatives said that about Barack Obama. They were lying when they said it. They just didn't like Barack Obama. Barack Obama never looked at an Asian American reporter and said, why don't you ask China? Barack Obama never looked at a racist protest and said there were good people on both sides. So just remember who he is. He, you know, he he comes out to a coronavirus press conference, talks about the wall Remember who was supposed to pay for the wall? Mexico. And it's a 2,000 mile border and he's talking about 180 miles. So um, he's worse at the wall than he is at testing and he's really bad at testing. So let's remember he's incompetent even at the things he thinks he's good at. He's just not good. Born on third base, thought he hit a triple. Has other people in his administration who were born on third base. His son-in-law... I mean, is in charge of everything. Give me a break. His son-in-law who got into Harvard because his daddy wrote a $2.4 million check to Harvard. These people know nothing other than privilege. And I I don't understand how regular working people don't see right through it every single chance they get. I mean, honestly, of all the people in America that should be running the coronavirus response, I'm going to pick my son-in-law to do it. Really? You're okay with that? My daughter, she's got a senior position in the White House. I don't even know what she does. We don't hear from her anymore. Could you imagine if Sasha or Malia or or Chelsea, God forbid Chelsea, had a position in the White House? I I I just America, point that out to your conservative friends every chance you get. Jared Kushner has failed up his entire life. So is Donald Trump, for that matter. Donald Trump's casinos went under. His daddy bailed him out. Donald Trump's hotels went under. His daddy bailed him out. He lost Trump water. The man was given $450 million by his father. And trust me, America, if you were given $450 million by your father, you would have just put it in a bank account and you'd be richer than this guy at this point. Don't tell me he's a businessman. He's a fake businessman who's been scamming people his entire life. The only thing he ever got right Was his PR strategy. And he branded himself. He has never built anything that lasts. And we need a president that is gonna build a recovery for this country that will last. We can't have another fraud, we can't have another four years of this fraud. It's got to end now. We've got to convince our friends. We've got to convince them that it's time for this guy to go. All right. I I got to thank you again for listening to this podcast. Please tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter, at Christopher Hahn on Twitter. Uh, Share this podcast on social media. Share it with your friends. If you like it, please. Uh, We're growing, and I want to keep growing. And I want to remind you now, as always, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, America, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.